a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. I am here with Liesl Pritzer-Simmons, who is joining us um, for the next hour and sharing her journey to impact. And a few things I just want to um, go over. This series has focused on different impact investors, uh, such as Jed Emerson, John Fullerton, uh, Joel Solomon, Erica Karp, uh, Lori Meyercourt, Danny Almagor, and uh, many others to come in the fall. Uh, Liesl wraps up our spring edition before we take the summer off. And um, our focus is really on trying to understand people's journey to impact. Um, as I was mentioned to Liesl a little earlier on the call, a lot of us in the investment business and just in terms of impact um, as well, often put forth a particular vision, a particular identity, a front-facing uh, platform that often sometimes uh, camouflages or covers up the real human side of what we're going through, and meaning that there's a lot of times where we're vulnerable, uh, bewildered, confused, and um, you know, just really sorting things out in real time and trying to make sense of things. And so as, as a collective, as we bring our voices together, and sharing sort of the behind the scenes look um, about that migration to um, the outer world, then it really helps us all sort of understand that we're not in this alone. So uh, welcome, Liesl. Um, for, the, for those of you who don't know uh, Liesl, she is the co-founder and principal of the Blue Haven Initiative, one of the first family offices created with impact investing as a focus. She's also the co-founder of the IDP Foundation, a private Chicago-based foundation focused on achieving universal primary education, um, attended Columbia University, and is on numerous boards, um, including um, Impact Assets, Tonic, which I'm a part of, which is how I um, got to connect with Liesl, and also The Impact, which essentially all of these organizations have one thing in common. They're really trying to bring awareness uh, to how we are responsible and stewarding our resources for the outer world, just not for profit's sake, but also all these externalities, like are we really taking into consideration social, environmental, and governance um, outcomes as well? So welcome, Liesl. Thank you. Yeah. Well, so um, start with where you're at right now, because I'm all the way on the other side of the coast. But sort of take me to um, where your place based. Um, I see. I mean, a lot of Blue Haven Initiative has a special place. Where at? Like, where is Blue Haven Initiative? Well, so we, um, well, I'm currently at my home um, in Concord, Massachusetts. Um and hopefully my two kids that are both napping right now will not make a surprise appearance. Um, but um, we are physically based, our office is in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but we manage a portfolio of investments that's really sort of all over the place. Um, most of our direct investing is um, in 
in sub-Saharan Africa and East Africa. So we've got a team that's there, um, but also also here in Cambridge. Um, and so, uh, and then we work with lots of partners that are sort of all over the place. So um, we are both um, very uh, sort of very tied and proud to be sort of in Concord and in Massachusetts, but a lot of our investing is sort of is, is all over the map. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, Concord's the home of Ralph Waldo Emerson. We were just talking about how how um, how how history plays such a deep role um, in in the East Coast uh, versus the West Coast is just sort of in and still in its teenager phase. Um, but I want to talk about this connection to Africa a little bit. How did you um, at Columbia you studied African history from um, from what I understand? But I mean, there's a difference between studying African history in college and then become mission focused about um, affairs in Africa. Can you take us through that sort of that journey on where that pivot occurred? Sure. So um, one of the things that I always kind of thought was interesting was my, my grandmother. So my mom's mom um, was um, British by heritage, but born and raised in Calcutta. Um, you know, under the Raj sort of, um, her, her father was an English civil servant. Um, and so she was raised sort of in colonial India, um, and didn't set foot outside the country until she had to go back to Ireland to marry my grandfather. And that was the first time she'd ever left India, um, which was fascinating for her. And so I remember hearing sort of these her impressions of sort of this colonial era, which growing up in Chicago in, you know, the 80s and 90s felt very far removed, but also not very far. You know, this wasn't that long ago. Um, and the remnants of, you know, colonialism on many places all over the world um, are are really complicated. And so, that that started to pique my interest in sort of this colonial past that I was a part of by my own heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I got to college, I was was in I definitely knew I wanted to be a history student. Um, and I kind of ended up taking a lot of colonial history classes. Um, and I got, I just ended up being more interested in African history. One of the reasons was because I was actually trying to be an African history major, but there weren't enough classes in the history department to even let that happen. So they kept kicking me over to sociology and to anthropology, which is not okay. Um, you know, they're different disciplines. And yeah. so it also then got me pissed off around this idea that academia is sort of thinks that Africa doesn't have history. Um, there's no history. It's really, it's anthropology, right? Um, and that's um, become a, obviously less and less of a, of a popular point of view, but there was something about that that also pissed me off and made me definitely want to be an African history major. Um, and so, so that was really why I wanted to study that. But um, I was at Columbia when Jeffrey Sachs came over and started the Earth Institute. And there was a lot of conversation about, you know, um, sustainable development versus traditional 
sort of development assistance in the form of, you know, grants and money. Um, how do we use market-based solutions? Microfinance was really popular. It was right around when Muhammad Yunus won the Nobel Peace Prize. And so um, I thought that was really interesting. And I want to go into international development. And I like this idea of market-based solutions. Um, I come on my dad's side from a very entrepreneurial family. And so um, kind of business was always, um, you know, sort of being, being, um, excelling in business was also something that, um, was important, very important to, to my dad and to my uncles, um, on that side as well. And so I liked that kind of combination of international development, but then also, um, using sort of private solutions. So what I ended up doing, um, uh, was I took some time off school and volunteered. And I ended up, one of my placements was at a, a microfinance institution in Tanzania. Um, and that then that's sort of why. Um, and one of the other things I always thought was particularly interesting was I was out of pretty ineffective MFI. Um, but it was right around when people were starting to get more mobile phones and mobile money was beginning to proliferate. And this idea of digital finance um, was, you know, barely starting to, um, to kind of enter the microfinance scene. Um, and I thought, this is really interesting because traditional microfinance isn't working very well in these parts of Africa. But maybe through some of this technology innovation, we'll, we'll be able to expand access. And so, so here we are several years later, over a decade later, and that's why we have a fintech portfolio focused in Africa. <laughs> so all the way from my grandmother, colonial history. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. For, you know, for those who are on the call that don't um, have a deep background like you do in microfinance, I mean, what is the intention and how has that worked out over the years and where is it currently at? Well, um, that's highly debatable. And I'm sure whatever I say, someone's going to argue the other way. Um, so the original idea um, is, you know, how do you extend, it started with credit, right? Microcredit. How do you extend um, credit to um, people in communities that sort of don't have formal banking institutions, um, people without bank accounts, but who, you know, want to start um, need a loan to buy supplies for their hairdressing salon or, you know, whatever the, the sort of micro enterprise is. Um, and one of the big innovations around that was how do you extend credit to somebody where you don't have a lot of information on them and they also don't have assets to lend against. Yeah. Um, so the big innovation was um, around creating group lending models, right? Like, can you, if you don't have collateral, can you sort of create social collateral amongst a group of people who will um, basically, uh, and, and so you give the group a loan um, and therefore it's you, you're more likely as a lender to get paid back. Um, and the repayment rates traditionally in a lot of places that do this sort of group lending model have been pretty high, um, which is great. It's just that 
um, the transaction costs for this style of microfinance is exceedingly high. It's very hard to get to these places, train loan officers to get there, and then like meet once a week with a group. It's it's terribly inefficient. Sure. Um, and so it's it 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 sort of stayed in the realm of nonprofits for several decades. Um, then in, in some areas in India and Mexico, particularly, there were some institutions that were actually able to create efficiencies and IPO their microfinance institutions and scale. Um, but then there were a lot of concerns that they were raising interest rates to be really, really high and usurious. Um, so that's been a concern. Um, and then there's also a lot of debate over whether or not extending credit to people actually improves their income level. Um, there, there are studies that say it does and some studies that say it doesn't. Um, but there are other kinds of products that are um, we know um, are really important, things like insurance, um, which is sort of extended the same way. So if it's not just credit, savings and insurance, um, being able to help um, help people pay school fees um, in a more kind of reliable way um, that ties directly to their savings accounts, things like that. So there's a, lots of other financial services that people need besides just credit. And so um, the real innovations have been around those different financial products beyond just credit and also um, different delivery mechanisms. So now that everyone or most pretty much everyone in the world has a phone, um, what we've also realized is, is maybe people are, are more credit worthy than we initially thought. Um, and uh, so people are doing micro lending just directly to, to consumers on their phone. There's lots of different kinds of products, but roughly speaking, that's where microfinance sort of started. And now it's now it's it's moved more into the sort of digital finance world. Now, how do you um, is it hands off in terms of so um, does your impact focus travel through to the kinds of businesses that you're willing to fund or is it like? They could be doing a gas canister business on the side of the road, um, and yet that's a business. Just sort of curious on on how far does the intentionality travel through, and what kind of, and then if it does travel all the way through, how do you sort of reconcile this idea of like, well, how much control do I really want of this situation? And then um, because you're trained in a historical background in colonization, it's like, where does their culture or the African culture able to experience Africanness with the colonial tools of credit and so forth? I'm just sort of under, I'm trying to understand where that edge is between the intentionality and trying to honor their culture isness. Well, well, credit, I mean, credit as a concept. Um, has a lot of historical African roots. Like in Ghana, for example, there's, um, for for as long as anyone can remember, that's called a Susu loan. Like, and that's their method. And you've got a Susu collector and you've got, and so there's actually versions of credit in these markets already. Um, and so um, I don't think it's an imposed, I guess I'm not approaching it as something that's imposed. It's more, how do you take, these concepts that are already there and just make them make, make it 
easier for people to easier for those transactions to take place. Um, so we don't when we the the kinds of companies that um, we've invested in now, we want that company to be um, providing a product or service that we think does have a positive impact. Um, and so for for the companies that are doing like payments processing, or invoice discounting or something like that. What we think is the impact is the impact is that we're making it, we're, we're advancing an innovation above the status quo. We're making it easier for, um, for example, one of our companies in Nigeria does the payments processing, sort of the back end um, for online businesses. We don't check every business that uses Paystack, but we think it's a good thing that that market is able to run more efficiently and more people have um, less friction to, to bring whatever they want to the marketplace. So that's a more kind of um, sort of ecosystem level impact that we think is important. Um, and we get to enjoy in this country, shouldn't everybody you know, have that ability um, to bring things to market easily. Um, and so that's, we, um, yeah, we wouldn't dictate sort of what sort of business people can do in that, in that sense. We just want the thing that we invest in to be, um, to be sort of helping markets run more smoothly. Um, and that's, that's one of the benefits also of being, um, a fairly nimble family office, um, for example, like Paystack, the company I was just referencing, um, we don't we don't have to have companies that look good on glossy reports. Like Paystack, it doesn't photograph well, right? Like it's a back end. It's a it's a it's a technical tool that you know. It's like how do you photograph like Stripe in the U.S. or like PayPal? Like it doesn't um, it doesn't photograph well. But I think it's a hugely it's hugely important to build that market out. It's plumbing. Um, to make an economy, uh, part of an economy, much, much more accessible for, um, for a lot of people. And so um, we are okay with taking a step back from the beneficiary. Um, and, and there are a lot of impact investors that don't have that luxury because they've got other funders that need to see that direct connection. Um, but we still think it's really important, the kind of market making as well. Yeah. Take me to that point where you decided to, um, you know, you know, uh, you're in this situation where all of a sudden you have an abund abundance amount of resources, more than what um, you can use, and your family can use, and your family can use and and so forth on a day to day basis or in the future. Take us through that moment where you decided not just to create a family office, but like, no, I want to do this in an impactful way. Um, and then some of the conversations that um, you had to have with the outside world to say, this is what I want to do. And then, um, yeah, sort of provided some color around that narrative um, around. It's very difficult. There aren't a lot of Blue Haven initiatives out there that are 100 percent focused and driven and really looking at all the contradictions involved in it and trying to do the best they can. Uh, with this. And so 
what year, what era did that start playing out? And what did the first first sort of foray into impact look like? Was it this microfinance? And then if it, if it was, how did it grow beyond sort of microfinance? Sure. Um, well, so, yeah, I am in a strange position because I – um, I inherited control over um, all the sort of assets that I was going to get when I was 21. Um, and basically with no strings attached, um, which is um, a little nuts and um, was also pretty overwhelming. So this was when I was in college. Um, and this is actually part of why I kind of took some time off and went and volunteered because um, it was really scary and I wasn't sure what to do. Um, so, uh, you know, I do what any kind of like sort of, sort of touchy feely, um, I think rich kid does. And I went to India. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so, um, and I kind of came back from that experience and I thought, okay, like this, I didn't make this money. I don't feel like I deserve it. Um, but this is a really powerful tool and I want to do something good with it. So I started off by doing sort of what, what I was told to do, which is you take a portion of it and you set up a foundation, right? You give it away. Um, And that's what you do when you have a lot of money and you care about the world is you set up a foundation. So I did, I took a portion of my assets and we set up the IDP foundation, um, which my mom runs Um, And it was focused on microfinance for low-cost private schools in Ghana. Um, And it is still working on that and has now served almost 700 schools um, throughout different regions of Ghana with loans and other kinds of trainings and um, and service offerings for low-cost private schools. Um, But one of the things, and I worked with her on that program for about four years, um, But one of the things that I started to realize is that um, I was spending 100% of my time working at this foundation, which was set up traditionally where, you know, you give away 5% of the assets a year. So I was spending 100% of my time on 5% of 10% of the assets that I actually had control over. Sure. And um, that, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Like that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, And, and so I started to get a little bit frustrated by that. I felt like I was pigeonholing myself to only look at the impact of a particular set of dollars Um, that I had sort of arbitrarily decided was the right amount to pay attention to impact with. Um, But the rest of the money, I really didn't quite know what it was doing. Um, I'd call into my quarterly meetings. I had very professional financial advisors, you know, like it was doing, but I just didn't know what any of those investments were doing. Um, And then I was also curious because since we'd been building out this microfinance program and trying to raise funding for it, I started to ask my financial advisors about microfinance investment vehicles, um, you know, which actually at that point even had been around for a while. And they were pretty resistant 
Um, you know, they were like, it's very risky. You know, I'm not sure you understand the currency exposure. I'm like, no, I do. Like I'm working in Ghana and the CD just tanked 24%. Like I, I do, I get the risk. Um, but, um, I still, what I like is that I know what that money is doing or I know where it's going. Um, and luckily for me, all of this started happening right around when the term impact investing got coined um, so cap started like there's, they're, they're just, there's the gin formed. There started to be a name for yeah. what I wanted. Um, and so I, I, I was very lucky in my timing, um, to sort of come around when, when there was enough infrastructure to actually help me to build a portfolio. So starting in about, um, 2009, I think, is when I made my first investment um, and then kept kind of marching through. And then in 2012, decided that I wanted to do it with 100% of my assets. Um, and that just, to me, philosophically makes sense. A dollar is a dollar. I don't understand why one dollar should can have impact and like we're not going to care about the other dollars. Like I just don't I don't philosophically understand that. And I'm in an incredibly luxurious position to be able to make that choice. Um and I, I recognize like I'm not I'm not trying to say that other people are I'm not trying to call bullshit on other people. There's a lot of reasons why people can't do that. Um, um, but I can structurally. And so I think I bet I damn well better. Um, and so that's, um, that's, that was sort of the timing. Um, and yeah, it was just, you know, and maybe it comes from the guilt around being an inheritor, um, not feeling like I deserve any of this. Um, but I do have a mandate to steward this to the next generation. And so on my watch, I want to know, I want to know what everything is doing. I want to be able to explain to my kids why we made that investment and why we thought that that was going to have a positive impact. Um, and um, that I think helps ease the guilt just a little bit, <laughs> but that was that's why we have sort of taken that approach. Um, first, just really wanting to know what everything's doing, and then if we can make its impact more positive, then we should. So, was that moment when you inherited at twenty one? Was that um, a timing element, or was that the passing of one of your parents? That was actually um, neither. It was a, a, a very contentious lawsuit that got settled. <laughs> Finally. Um, and so uh, that was also, I think, part of it was was it was coming out of um, a, a rather testy period in our family's life, which has since been, you know, it's all water under the bridge now. And it's been it's it's been enough time. But, um, yeah, I think that was that was also that was also part of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. And so how has your um, family been involved with it um, in terms of the creation? Maybe take us through what your role has been since that 2012 moment where you took full control 
Um, I'm guessing there were some conversations with the one-dimensional financial advisors who probably thought you were nuts. Um, and but you also brought your husband um, and um, Ian along for this journey. And I mean, you guys live very integrated lives. And just curious about how, as a family, you moved forward, not just as a family office from a business perspective, but how did you integrate your family into the family office process? And what does sort of the day-to-day look like, sort of going back to 2012 and then sort of up to today in terms of more of an integrative approach? Sure. Um, Well, one of the first things we did that was really, really helpful um, was Jed Emerson um, joined our investment committee and sort of came on as an advisor to help us think about this stuff, um, which was amazing. So one of the first things he had us do was sort of sit down and like think about our family mission statement and our values. Um, and one of the ones that also, you know, came sort of as we were doing this exercise that really came through is both this, this sense of sort of integration, holistic, um, transparency, is really important to us as well. Um, and so um, I don't want to, even though, you know, technically some assets might be mine and some assets might be his, we want to think of everything um, sort of t- together. Um, this is sort of our family. These are things we're building, you know, to go forward. And so um, I want to make sure that there's transparency um, and, and sort of integrated decision-making as well. And so, um, we sort of sit atop of, of all of these assets. Um, we have an investment committee. We have two investment committees for one for the African strategy and then one for the whole family office generally. Um, so one of the things that we did was formed an investment committee that can vote. Mm -hmm. Um, and Ian sits on both of those investment committees. Um, I do, and then um, we have some uh, some external people as well. Um, and then our managing director of, um, of our venture portfolio also sits on them. So we have some internal staff and some external advisors as well. Um, and so from a governance standpoint, um, he can see everything that's going on and also um, vote on everything that happens. And, you know, our plan is also when our kids are old enough um, to bring them into that process pretty early. Um, And uh, the other part that Ian has really informed, um, his background is really more in sort of community organizing, student organizing. Um, He's sort of a, he's a political creature. Um, And he also understands that you know, um, we can do the best we can over in the private sector um, to think about some of these large problems, but ultimately a lot lot of the problems that we're facing are policy failures. And so how do you get um, a well-educated, engaged citizenry um, who can actually make it to the polls to vote? and how do you get a diverse group of candidates? How do you get a better pipeline, a more diverse pipeline of candidates that can run? How do you take money out of politics? Um, all of this sort of the, the, the public sector 
corollaries to some of the things we're trying to tackle in our investment portfolio um, is his kind of, that's what he cares a lot about. And I actually, before we met, wasn't very engaged uh-huh. on that side at all. I mean, I'm sh- I'm ashamed to say, but, um, you know, I kind of was like, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's all ineffective and it's bureaucratic and, you know, let's just have companies solve some of these problems. And that's a, that's a very dangerous point of view. Um, and so what's been nice in this partnership is he has really made us think about how we can also use our convening power and our capital and influence in all different ways, um, to make a dent on some of these structural issues as well. And so, you know, we should be standing up, people exactly like us should be standing up for a wealth tax publicly. Um, we should be, you know, talking about um, about wealth inequality and, you know, what are we doing to really combat that from a policy standpoint as well? Um, and so that, um, that part of our work over the years has started to elevate. And then, you know, with political events going the way that they have, you know, it's so, it's so important. And so sometimes in the impact investing world, we just want to focus on the investment piece, but we also need to be regulated. You know, we need, we need good rules in place um, because investors are just terrible at self-policing. So. (laughs) Yeah. Amen. How do you plan on bringing that you see? I mean, you, you loosely mentioned you plan on bringing in your kids. Like, I mean, how, like, what does that look like in terms of your current image of what that looks like in terms of integrating your kids into the, you know, the impact so, of the, the things? I will preface this with, I, I don't know yet. And I'm, I'm sure that whatever I do, I will make the wrong decision. Like, I feel like that's like, that's like my right as, as a mom. Um, (laughs) but, um, uh, one of the things that, um, I think is important and I see a lot of, um, families, wealthy families, um, sort of try to almost deny that they're wealthy to their kids, even though they'll like still take a private jet or things like that, but they sort of pretend that their kids have no idea that they come from a wealthy family. And I'm like, listen, if your kid can use Google, they know. Um, and their friends are telling them. Um, and so just because you haven't had the conversation with them doesn't mean that they don't know. I think it's very, very much like sex. Like just because you haven't told your kids about sex, like they, they know, they know. <laughs> so, you know, why don't you be the person to, um, to start a healthy dialogue about what wealth means um, in the context of your family. And so we try to do that. And I'm probably on, on, I recognize I'm, I'm probably on the like radical transparency end of the spectrum. Um, and I'm sure that can have, I mean, I don't know if that's the right approach, but, um, we, my husband and I are very transparent with the world about why we think it's important to use our wealth in this way. So I think the cat's out of the bag um, for them. And so what I just want to do, what we've started to do is just show them 
So we invest in community solar projects here in New England. So we go visit them. We go see them get put up and we talk about where power comes from and we talk about, you know, why this school is now going to, you know, be powered by the sun instead of by oil um, or by dinosaurs, you know, like, and so we, we try to have the, um, bring it down to their level. Um, and, uh, at least to show them things that we are a part of. Um, I mean, there's still, I mean, my oldest is four, so we're, we're really early yet, but that's my plan is at least to show them this is, this is what our family business is. Um, and then, um, but I also recognize they may be totally uninterested um, in investing or in business. And that's okay too. Um, but I just at least want them to know what we've, what we have done, and then we can figure out how they want to take it going forward. Um, what does that, what, I mean, what does radical transparency look like? Um, let's dive into that a little bit more. And then how do you sort of navigate just feeling vulnerable around, you know, um, you know, I mean, there is a connection between our inner world of vulnerability and our willingness to be transparent. Um, it takes a certain amount of faith, a centeredness. I'd like to learn a little bit more about how you've sort of negotiated, um, you know, the human frailties of existence and sharing things um, and yet having this interest of radical transparency. So sort of give us a sense of what that looks like um, for you guys out in the world. You sort of touched on it, but maybe you can dig it, dig in and be a little bit more uh, clear, maybe some clear examples on that front. Then also, was it hard to get there? Um, and then where, like, have um, you've had to recenter maybe around it? And just sort of uh, sort of curious about how that navigation has went. Well, that's a good question. I think um, the part that um, I think that like part of the delicate balance is um, sharing what we're what we're trying to do um, and genuinely working hard at. But then there's always a risk that, you know, we're going to find some horrible thing in our portfolio or there's a, you know, there's a hypocrisy um, that's going to get exposed underlying all of it. And the thing is, is I've always tried to be very careful of like, look, this, these are our intentions. This is where we are trying to pay attention to these things, but we're not perfect and we screw up. Um, and that's definitely likely to happen. We've never had a massive blow up, but that's not to say that it's not going to happen. We try to be careful and I try never to sound preachy or like I'm like holier than thou because I'm not. Um, but I think that's the part that I'm sort of the most concerned about is that there's some awful, horrible thing in our portfolio, some scandal that gets exposed. Luckily, we weren't in TPG, so we avoided that one. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, so I think I think that's that's part of it, too. But I think the the benefits of just being honest vastly outweigh the negatives. The other thing though, that I also want to be clear about is um, it's a privileged position to be able to be this honest. I'm not representing a bank. 
I don't have to go and collect clients. Um, I don't have to, um, I don't have to worry about how I'm going to get promoted. I don't have to worry about, yeah, what my, what my sales is or, or how many tweets I'm getting or how many, I don't have to worry about that because I don't work for anyone. And so, um, and we don't run other people's money. We just run our own. So I have very little accountability. Sure. Um, and so I have the privilege to sort of talk about whatever I want. And that's extremely privileged. And I understand that. And so I never want to sound like I'm, um, you know, like everybody should be doing this. Not everybody can. Um, but for those of us that can, I think it's helpful to do it. What do I have to lose? Sure. I'm the luckiest person I know. You know, um, and that's a, that's that's the privilege of this kind of wealth and this kind of autonomy. Um, so and so being vulnerable have... doesn't cost as much to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, well, let's look at that. Like, I mean, what do you think the opportunity cost is as a culture of us not creating conditions for people to be vulnerable? And then you have these capital markets that just really act so anonymously and without any sense of consequence for uh, the social and environmental realm. I'm just sort of trying to really draw out a little bit more. It's like you have your situation and you've really um, articulated it well in terms of how fortunate and privileged you are. But I'm wondering if maybe part of the gift is how we all contribute to conditions that create trust and non-judgmental moments to unleash the human social capital within that will actually. Um, so my belief is, is that the allocation of capital is often runs in parallel to the energetic um, disposition of the person. So hmm. like if someone's restless inside, they're probably going to be very exploitative outside. Um, <laughs> I see it like, I mean, as a form of compensation. So, I mean, if I'm not loved and I'm not heard, I'm probably going to be very violent on the world. Um, it's just mm. sort of like now all of a sudden if I have money, which is horrible, if somebody's going to be violent in the world and has money, they can do a lot of damage really fast. So I'm trying to get at um, you said an example. You're aware of the privileged position, but what can we do as a collective to really support vulnerability, inner work? as a way of redesigning capital into more intentional um, worlds and ways of being? Well, I don't know if I knew the answer to that one, but I think, you know, listening, taking, taking, taking time to, to really listen and give somebody the benefit of the doubt. Um, try to, you know, try to see it from their point of view and try to, you know, don't, don't rush to judgment so quickly. And, and it's, that's tough to do in the impact investing space. We're a very judgy crew. We're very judgy. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I think allowing time and space for nuance. Um, uh, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. Um, I think that, um, I think that's a, that's a really powerful thing. Um, and just being patient, being a patient listener. Um, but that's not something that we value that much in this society. Um, 
patience and listening doesn't feel like an output, even though it really, really is, you know, um, it is. And so we don't, we haven't structured any kind of compensation for that kind of an output, you know? <laughs> I like that. There you yeah. go. That's a good point. Could you imagine if people just got paid to listen and then they yeah. got uh, subtracted for talking? Yeah. Um, there you I mean, go. As, as white males, if I mean we got subtracted for talking, I mean we would be much. Um, I mean our balance sheet would like readjust really fast. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, do you think that the impact investing space is judgy amongst itself inside, or is it more on the outer world that uh, the impact investing space is judgy? I think it's both. Um, I think, yeah, I do. I mean, I definitely think that, and, and, uh, but I also agree with this point that I think impact investing is superior to traditional investing because I think we're being more honest about what things cost. Um, that's, that is what I think. So I think it is a superior way, um, to, um, to interact in the financial world. Otherwise I genuinely do. Um, and, uh, but even within within ourselves, I think that there's always, um, oh, yeah, there's some people, you know, who think, you know, this investor is sort of, you know, it's bullshit and they're greenwashing. And then, you know, other people saying, oh, it's too touchy-feely. They don't know anything about markets. And so I think, you know, there's, yeah, there's squabbles within the realm or, um, and I think that's okay, though. That's yeah. That's okay. Um, that should be there. Um, and that's, I think, a sign of a market that's maturing or a community that's maturing is that you start to sort of get factions within it and styles within it. So I think that's okay. At what point does the match, does the maturation of the space become its own limitation? Um, essentially, um, it's in a really full-blown evolutionary space right now where a lot of people get to come in with a lot of energy, but there sort of tends to be a, a disciplinary imperative to constantly try to organize it. And I'm curious about, um, I see, I mean, I know you've been very instrumental in helping Tonic get off the ground and a lot of other impact groups. What kind of conversations are going on and like, hey, how do we keep the aliveness behind our community present, alive, and up front and making sure that the that the um, imperative to organize and bureaucratize is present, but it's, it's not the leading initiative. Or is it to you like or should it be? I mean, perhaps. Well, I think also. Understanding um, being patient with people who are sort of new to this or entering from their particular point of view. Um, and so I read there was um, someone wrote a piece. Um, uh, I think it might have been, I think it was Stephanie Cohen Rupp um, wrote a piece in FT around like, I think impact investing is losing its way. And it was a great, I mean, it was a great piece and there's lots of things in there that I agree with, but I also think you, that article could have easily been published three years ago and it will easily still stand in two years and in five years and in seven years. Like, I think we're always going to think we're in a crisis mode or that something is wrong. Um, but then again, there are also people 
at large financial institutions that have been trying to get impact investing on their books for a while. And they come to market with like one product they've been trying to jam through the investment committee and they finally got it on. Is it going to, is it perfect? Is, you know, is Jed going to think it's going to change the world? Maybe not, but for them, it was a huge win. And so for me, I think, that's okay. Like we've got to let people come, come to it from where they are, you know? Um, and then hopefully we will all get better. Um, and we can, we can improve, but everyone has, has got to start somewhere. Um, what I don't like is when, um, you know, people come to market with something that is, uh, sort of marginally impactful and pretend it's like absolutely going to save the world. I think if we can be honest about like, you know, look, if this is a screened ETF, it's not, you know, we're not saving babies, but, um, it's better than this other ETF. Um, at least we can be honest about where things are. So, um, I, it's the, it's, it's the dishonesty piece that I think is, is what we want to watch, but I'm okay with there being a spectrum because at the end of the day, here's the other thing. I don't care what, um, you know, a big financial institution calls their fund. If they want to use impact language when it isn't, I don't care because we're going to find that out in the due diligence process. We're going to learn, um, sorry, I'm sorry, one sec. Um, We're going to learn um, that's going to get exposed when we look at what the underlying investment is. Like, I don't know a whole lot of investors that would, you know, take take a a funds document. And if the fund says, um, that it's going to, it's, it's, it's going to return 120%. And they go, oh, well, it says, it says right there, it's going to return 120%. So we're good. Like who would look at, who would look at the marketing materials of a fund and say, oh, it's impact. Who said it was right there on the cover. We have to do the work. And so the thing is that that's okay. That's fine. If they, if they want to greenwash something, it's the job of the investor to call bullshit on it and say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to put my money there. Um, I'm okay. So that's why I'm, I get less worried about that Mm -hmm. Um, because that's part of the job. That's part of our job as investors is to look under the hood and say, Nope, this is bullshit. Um, Related is that part of um, where we're at 10 years from now is, is that um, if you look out 10 years from now, more investors will be able to discern those kinds of things? Or in addition to that, what does the impact space look like a decade from now to you? <laughs> um, well, one of the things that I'm starting to get excited about is um, there seems to be a little bit more um I think uh, consensus around some of these impact management and measurement tools, um, which a few years ago, I think everyone would have been like, there's no way that we're ever all gonna agree. But I'm really encouraged by um, some of the uptake of like the impact management project 
And um, I know the gym just came out, I think today or yesterday with the new sort of Iris toolkit. Um, I don't think it's going to solve everything because um, I don't think we'll ever like all agree about what metrics we think are the most important, but that's okay. I think that's all right too. But I think we will get better at um, what reporting and management looks like. Um, and I also think that um, uh, I'm also hoping that there is more conversation on the policy front as well. So what are ways that, like, how do we get environmental and social risks um, embedded in how companies report? What is material financial information for investors to get? Um, you know, what actually needs to go on a 10K? Um, I think I think we're going to make some progress there because people are doing some really great work around why ESG um, indicators are actually material to financial performance. Um, and so that's that's where I hope we go as well. There's just more more information and more disclosures that then investors can can parse. Wouldn't it be interesting if externalities flowed all the way down to the K1 statements? Um, yeah. If you think about it. Where all of a sudden you'd have like, oh, this is environmental loss of this business or environmental gain. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden it's like the social loss or the social gain or governance loss, government gain. And because right now K1 is obviously just pure finance. Right. So but I think. Boy, I mean, that I would think, just be a whopper. I think that would be amazing. Um, I also like another form I would love to see improved um, is. What if foundations had to report on their 990 what percentage of their endowments were aligned with their mission? Mm -hmm. So every foundation has to have a mission statement. Like it can say, I mean, it can sort of be whatever. It can be gobbledygook, but you have to have a mission statement. So what if foundations had to self-report they have to report every investment but like what if they what if they had to self-report what percentage of that they thought was aligned with their mission you know these are these are tax-exempt entities they're supposed to be for the public good yeah it's a good point How much of your endowment is invested for the public good you know that's a lot yeah. of money in there um mm -hmm. and i think the foundations have been real slow anyway yeah most of, yeah, most of us don't know what a 990 is so i mean what oh. is a 990 Sorry, that's the that is the 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 form that foundations need to fill in every year to maintain their charitable status. So it's a reporting requirement. Um, gotcha. Yeah. And you're um, suggesting that if they had to report um, on the gap between what is currently their existing portfolio and their mission. Mm -hmm. uh, so essentially. Uh, an example would be maybe their mission is environmental protection of wetlands, and yet their portfolio has Exxon and Shell exactly. and Chevron in it, who's has oil rigs and you know precious wetlands type of thing. Right. Gotcha. Exactly. And so, if that already wasn't a problem with the board or the investment committee of that foundation, maybe if the accountant brings it up, you <laughs> yeah. know, or the tax attorney, maybe that maybe that'll get through. <laughs> So, do you think that there's going to be um, 
occupations that are going to grow out of the impact investing space, like impact accountants, impact attorneys, um, essentially that actually to feed the ecosystem, because I'm not quite sure, just like when people say, I want to do impact investing and they say my current financial advisor, I share information with them, but they're really not. I was like, you got to go to somebody that's just doing it full time. Um, yeah, like, there's enough out there. It's like, you're wasting your time. Um, and I said, there's enough people out there doing it full time. Do it. I'm thinking that like we also need not just financial advisors, but we need accountants or we need attorneys who just impact just. And so so we're part of this larger ecosystem that are all supporting each other in integrative ways, using the same language so that when you and I get on the phone with accounts and lawyers, we're not starting at ground zero constantly because every supporting profession is almost still starting at ground zero. Yeah, I I agree. And I think I think the lawyers also, I think that's an area that's overlooked, but they're starting to organize like impact conferences for lawyers as well. And a few law firms that really said we're going to we're going to make this part of our sort of brand identity is that we're good at this. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it could be, it could be an area of expertise. I mean, I would like it to be pervasive throughout all of those professions eventually, but maybe it'll start as, um, as, as sort of an area of expertise within like say a law firm. So, you know, if you've got, if you're going to that law firm to help you with estate planning, then they'll go get the guy who's the expert or the girl who's the expert in estate planning. And, you know, maybe there'll be an impact expert as well. But I, I think it would be great if these things get integrated into actual law schools and business schools as well. Starting to see it more in business schools. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, which is fun. Um, but it's always like, you know, it's its own course, right? It's not just like general principles. So Yeah, yeah no, it's not built embedded into the whole curriculum. It's, yeah. Right. It's still, yeah. there's this, you know, here's this kooky niche strategy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, um, hey, Liesl, we're coming up on the top of the hour. Is there something that um, you'd like to share that wasn't covered in terms of your uh, journey to impact? I don't think so. This has been really, really great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah it's really went by really quickly. I looked up and was like, wow, it's awesome. I know. So, um, well, great. Well, thank you. Yes. Thank you. Um, if you're just joining, uh, if you joined us late, this is uh, Gino Borges with the Journey to Impact series. We're here with Liesl Pritzer-Simmons. Um, Liesl, thank you so much. And I uh, really feel fortunate to have your voice as you see him as part of this conversation. Thank you. All right. Have a good day. All right. You too. Thank you for listening to the Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com. 